welcome to Trek Film Society, the podcast on Talk Film Society, where we take a look at the Star Trek movies with a more critical eye. I'm Mike, and I'm joined as always by my two co-hosts, Marcelo. How's it going, Marcelo? Hello, it's going great. Glad to be here. And Diego. How's it going, Diego? Hello, it is going. It definitely is going. Uh, <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna do this film justice, the the topic of Star Trek justice, and we are going to to murder the plumbers for taking so long in my house. <laughs> we're not yes. gonna murder anyone. I'm just angry. It's it's not even their fault. It's just a bad situation. Okay. Yeah. Just didn't get it, that on my system. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. We're all we're all going through some stuff. You know, it's it's mid March. It's the Ides of March. Um, oh boy, is it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Diego's dealing with plumbing problems and the nation is dealing with its own problems. But yes, we're here. We're here. We're, we're here to make a great episode of uh, this new series. Yes, we are. And today we are kicking off our series with, with, with actual movies by looking at Star Trek, the motion picture. But before we get into that, should we talk a little bit about today's episode of Star Trek, our companion episode of Star Trek? Yes, we should. Um, I think uh, we, we, we did talk about this in the intro episode. Um, and Mike, I mean, if anybody is skipping ahead, I mean, talk uh, briefly about uh, pairing episodes of the shows with uh, the, the movies themselves. Yeah. What we are going to be doing with this series is taking a look at episodes of the, the larger franchise that in some way or another relate to the movie which we're watching. It could be a case of, you know, like with Wrath of Khan, okay, okay, yes, we need to watch Spacey, that sort of thing. It could also be something like, oh, hey, this is a little event which is referenced in this movie which would give an idea of the the larger scale upon which the, the movie is based or maybe this one is written by the same person who wrote this movie or whatever it could be any number of things but our goal is to hit at least one episode from every single star trek show in order to give sort of a taste of the franchise on the whole while still focusing on the movies themselves so for today's episode, we were taking a look at Star Trek, the original series, season two, episode three, The Changeling. Ooh, this, yes. This is an episode which was written by John Meredith Lucas, who played a, a, re a really big role in particular in season three of the original series, which was not a very good season. But this episode is considered by many to be a classic and i think it's fairly obvious why we picked this one to to watch with star trek the motion picture um is it because it uh, it uh, features all the original cast and they're also in the in the in the movie is that is that the reason <laughs> that, that's that's one reason another reason is because it has like the exact same plot of the oh, movie oh yeah that's it right it is like verbatim almost <laughs> <laughs> which i mean it was a thing that was being done i mean i guess to some extent it's still done you know these days but like you, you even even when things are not necessarily like reboots, you know, you kind of like relaunch a popular TV show or something with a remake of something else. You know, like the mm -hmm. first episode of the 80s Mission Impossible, which still had the same cast and everything of the 60s Mission Impossible, was a remake of a classic episode from the 60s Mission Impossible. So yeah. it's it's kind of tricky. But I think in this case, it was more of a scenario of like, we had this idea, it was really good, now we have a ton of money and a, a very long running time, and we can flesh it out. Right? Yeah. yeah. Well, let's mm -hmm. talk about this episode, then I have questions about the movie itself and this plot line. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, th I think I did mention in the last episode that I watched the first two seasons of the original series. And I, after watching this one, 
actually uh, rewatched it uh, today before recording the changeling i thought to myself oh i need to go back and rewatch the first two seasons for sure i have not seen it th- the uh, third season mike so i don't i uh, maybe to see i have to see for myself just how bad it is mm-hmm. um <laughs> but uh, but no this is a god this is why i love star trek this episode of tv it's like 50 minutes long the, st- the story is well paced there's some good action beats there's like a good quote-unquote villain yeah i dug this uh episode uh this uh, and again i mean it's why i love star trek it's like a self-contained story that really delves into the sci-fi and you know um i guess uh extraterrestrial uh elements that star trek does so well so yeah diego what do you think about the changeling uh i i long ago i did a top best like episode of star trek for uh the now uh, no longer functioning site of audiences everywhere.net RIP uh, shout out to everyone who worked there a bunch of lovely lovely people um, and the changeling did not make it onto my list if I recall and rewatching this I would kick my past self in the butt because this is a this is a terrific episode of Star Trek uh, this is absolutely one of the best of the original series for sure and I, I think it also goes to show the ingenuity like i i i, I kind of like har- like try not to call too many people geniuses nowadays because like starting to lose its luster but the writers of star trek if they're not geniuses they're pretty freaking inventive because it's very clear often that they would just use props and like outfits from other shows because they had like no money and so this is like the changeling is one of the only episodes of the series that takes place entirely on the ship of the Enterprise. And here it's like, what do we have? Okay, we got like parts from this, from this machine, this machine. Okay, that's the villain. What, what's the story here? And so the beauty of Star Trek is in that, that conflict with the scientific nature of things and trying to like understand them. You know, like it's a, it's a utopia future, but there's still going to be conflict in like the discoveries that we have. And um, this one is like the pinnacle, I think, of that because they're basically just talking to like a box the whole time (laughs) and trying to like figure out what this box wants Mm -hmm. (laughs) and uh, it is never less than compelling and it it was a genuine shock uh, how like how this was not like i did not consider this one of the the best of the series but uh i would now and i don't know why that is (laughs) i have a question diego do you remember what you put you know up up top on that list that you made um oh the the best one is like this is a it's kind of a boring answer. It's like, what's the best Batman movie? It's like, it's probably Dark Knight, like, just because, you know. Uh, so for Star Trek, I, the best episode was um, a, a City on the Edge of Forever. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. Which is probably still my favorite episode, because, like, wow. Yeah, I mean, it definitely is considered to be the Citizen Kane of Star Trek. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and I, I, I would put City on the Edge of Forever on my top 10 of the original series, but I, I don't think that I would put Changeling on there, although I do think that this is a, a very good episode. It's got, um, I think, probably my second favorite instance of Captain Kirk talking a computer to death. Uh, something which he's done three or four times at least on the original series, um, most notably to me anyway, Return of the Archons. But this one's pretty good where he convinces the uh, spoilers, he convinces the computer that uh, it needs to kill itself because it kills things which are not perfect and it made a mistake, which means it's not perfect itself. So it's pretty good, pretty good stuff. Um, is this, I can I ask Mike, is this... Well, you said there were different instances where Kirk does that to to machines. Is this the first time that happened, or was there an earlier episode? No, I'm pretty sure Return of the Archons was first. Okay. Um, yeah, with Landrew. Uh, that that episode's great. If you haven't seen it, definitely check it out. That could very well make my top ten. But, uh, yeah. Um did I, I, I can't remember if I mentioned this last episode, I tell this story all the time, but the, uh, the relation between this episode and the Clint Eastwood movie, The Changeling? No, you did not. No. Okay. You, uh, we, we shouldn't get into it. All right, moving on. No, go ahead, Mike, go ahead, please. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I mean, I was a projectionist for a long time and, uh, you know, we would always get, uh, films which had, uh, code names. 
on them. And and when the Changeling came out, you know, one of the things which was kind of interesting about it was that it was uh, written by J. Michael Straczynski, the creator of Babylon 5 and Sense8 and uh, writer of various comic books and everything. He's a nerd. In fact, uh, back in the the sort of like in-between time, like after Enterprise went off the air, but before the J.J. verse kicked off, he proposed a reboot of Star Trek, the original series, which would be like very continuity driven, but it would be a, a remake, kind of like a BSG version of the original series. So he's a big fan, is my point. And I don't know whether or not this has anything to do with him, but, you know, movies would always come with code names so that you would never know what movie you were actually playing, you know, I mean, in theory, or basically so that nobody would steal it thinking like, oh, this is Star Wars. I got to, you know, I got to, I got to steal this print of Star Wars. You know, no one would steal a print of Black Eyes, which is one of the, I think it was for the third one or something like that. So when they shipped out Changeling, the the code name that they used for Changeling was Nomad. Ah, which was the best part of that movie. <laughs> I was gonna say, I, 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 when did that movie come out? I don't. And what it, what is that movie about? I just have. I know it's a movie. I just forgot what it is. It's it's based on a true story about a woman who's played by Angelina Jolie in like the '30s or something like that, where something happens or whatever, and she's I, I can't remember if her kid goes to school or if she goes to the hospital or what, but. They're like, hey, uh, Angelina Jolie, here's your kid. And she's like, that's not my kid. <laughs> and everyone's like, what are you talking about? Of course it's your kid. You're crazy. You know, and then, you know, basically the whole time she's trying to uncover this thing and figure out where her kid is, figure out why everybody is saying that this is not her kid. And I mean, there's no sci fi thing to it or anything like that. It's a you know, more of like a true crime story or something. But I mean, it's, it's a weird concept, uh, but uh, not tremendously good as a movie. So, yeah, I remember cause I've never seen it. I, and just from your description, I think the title itself is the coolest aspect of that movie. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 So, all right. So should we get into, I feel like we should get into like the the history of of these movies, like how they came to be, because I mean, certainly this is stuff that like Star Trek fans know, but I feel like non Star Trek fans might not, and I think that they would help to, uh, I don't know, give context to, to to what it is that we're seeing and why. Does that make sense? Yeah, because yeah. yeah. this is actually the first Star Trek movie in particular goes through quite a development. Oh, uh, yes. like a, a lot, a lot. There's a bunch of science fiction writers attached at various points. There's like weird mythological inspirations for various scripts and drafts. And yeah. And, and also because of all that stuff, like people, and, and this is something which, which becomes important later on in the franchise, but you know, this thing had a budget or, or it didn't have a budget, but it, it, it cost like, $40 million to make or something like that, some astronomical figure. And the reason for that is because all of these projects which were developed and then never happened were sort of rolled into the cost of this movie. So it's kind of like an inflated figure, which is not really accurate, but did certainly influence the way they uh, dealt with the series going forward. So I guess the origins of this movie begin back in 1969 when they canceled the show. They canceled it not because people weren't watching it, but because it was too expensive to make. But there was certainly an audience there. And of course, in the 70s is when Star Trek became super huge because of the syndication stuff, the reruns. And it was certainly always on the network and the studio's radar and they knew that they wanted to bring it back. And the plan was originally to bring it back as something which may or may not have been a television movie uh, directed by Philip Kaufman, co-creator of Raiders of the Lost Ark and director of tons of movies in the seventies. I mean, he was a list, you know, mm -hmm. and 
he was going to do a movie called Planet of the Titans, Star Trek Planet of the Titans, which the chariot of the gods thing was like really big back then. The idea of like ancient aliens who came and built the pyramids or some shit like that. And they thought like, oh, well, that's the hot thing. Let's let's talk about let's let's do a, a movie about that, you know, and the idea was basically the Enterprise is going to go back in time to ancient Earth and they were going to be the Greek gods, you know, like like that that was humans' interpretation of what they were seeing when they saw the Enterprise was basically, you know, whoever, Zeus or whatever, you, you know, that sort of thing. And the, the most interesting thing about that to me is that the Klingons were going to be the bad guys and the person who, I don't know if they had officially cast him yet, but the person who they were going to get to play, like, the big Klingon bad guy was Toshiro Mifune. Oh, wow. <laughs> that would have been crazy, right? Oh, that would have been so good. And, I mean, it's really telling that um, international audiences were, like, or at least international productions were very keen to Toshiro Mifune as, like, a... Like, he's just obviously, like, a superstar. Like, any of his performances, you're like, that is, like, that's what I think of as an actor. Because he was also in the running for Obi-Wan Kenobi at one point. Oh, yeah. yeah. Which is, like, and so he almost dipped into both of the star franchises. And I just think that's really cool. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, So, I have a question. I I did see a little behind the scenes uh, making a featurette on the um, DVD that I managed to get of the original movie of the director's edition the director's cuts um that's only available in standard definition right mike uh, you mentioned that in the last episode yes although yeah. there's there's rumors swirling about that they're uh, working on a 4k version yeah let's let's yeah. hope so um because yeah. not to jump ahead but even seeing like the the opening credits yeah. feels 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 very early 2000s late mm-hmm. 90s um mm-hmm. yeah could be updated um but yeah i i I didn't know. I knew some of 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 uh, the the reason why, you know, they pushed this to a movie. What, what I'm fascinated by is like them trying to do a new season. What was it called? Like phase two of the of the show, a revival. Like um, like when does that come into play? Was that before that movie that uh, that that you were just mentioning, Mike? Like how does that play into them making the motion picture? It, it was it was after the movie, and and the movie did have some some. So, I mean, th- just one other side note on that, like there's some concept art from the movie with like a completely redesigned Enterprise and stuff, and all this concept art was done by Ralph McQuarrie, who of course oh, did wow. all the stuff for like Star Wars and everything, and this was pre Star Wars, and there's a couple of very famous paintings of what the Enterprise was going to be, which was a drastic redesign, and when Brian Fuller came on board to uh, create Star Trek Discovery, the current show, he went back to that art and he used Macquarie's designs as the basis for the Discovery, which is pretty amazing. So anyway, just just a little aside there. So as far as this new thing is concerned, they for whatever reason, they scrap uh, Planet of the Titans and... Uh, Paramount wanted to start up a fourth network. This was prior to Fox existing. They were like, we're going to start up a fourth network. And uh, just like today with CBS All Access uh, or, you know, the 90s when Paramount actually did start up their new network with UPN, they knew that Star Trek was a huge property which would be perfect to launch that platform. And they got everyone except for Leonard Nimoy to come back to do what right now is, is commonly referred to as Star Trek Phase 2, but if they had actually broadcast it, they were just going to call it Star Trek again, so whatever. Um, but uh, that was going to be a show, and it was it came super-duper close to being shot. Like, sets were built, scripts were written, the series was entirely cast, and, I mean, they were... They were ready to go. And um, the interesting thing about it is that the the pilot was essentially 
Star Trek the motion picture. When they decided to do this as a movie, they just expanded on that pilot. It was called, I think, Eye of the Beholder. Uh, but, you know, all of the, the building blocks are there. Like, Leonard Nimoy wasn't coming back, but everyone else was coming back. So they were like, okay, well, we need a new first officer and we need a new Vulcan because you can't, you know. So so they had a, a younger guy cast as this, this Vulcan who actually appears in the movie. He's the dude on the space station in the very first scene that gets like evaporated by by V'ger the guy who's like oh uh, there's this thing's coming you know whatever and then he dies that that guy was going to play like a young hip Vulcan and then um, Stephen Collins was going to play Decker and Persis Kambata was going to play Ilea and they were going to be regular characters you know the idea behind Decker was basically like Captain Kirk's old he can't go on adventures. So this is going to be like the action proxy for the captain. Right. And even though, you know, they all die in this thing or whatever, like they had so many scripts written that you could kind of see like what the plan was. And they were basically going to do what they ended up doing on next generation. In a lot of ways, next generation is just sort of like phase two, only, you know, 10 years later. So like, Decker was basically Riker and Ilea was basically Troy. Their whole relationship, everything was established in in phase two. And during the writer's strike in season two of, of Next Generation, they actually started pulling scripts out of phase two and adapting them into episodes. So there's, I think, two episodes in season two of Next Generation, which originally were episodes of phase two. So the the reason why they didn't do it as a show is because they decided not to do the Paramount Network for whatever reason. And also Star Wars came out, right? And they were like, okay, yes, uh, a big screen. Of course, of course, we've got our star franchise. We need to do it, you know, on the big screen. One other note, though, about, about this thing, like the sets were built and everything and they had like a certain design aesthetic and there's a couple of sets which were reused for this and you can actually see like when you're the scenes in like uh, Kirk's um, like ready room or office or whatever it is his little control panel was what the, the the entire ship was going to look like originally you can see these little elements and they they show up again in Star Trek too so that's just kind of a cool little like oh that's what it was going to be like oh that's kind of interesting that sort of thing but regardless it became a movie. They decided they were going to make it a movie. So they expanded it and everything, and they wanted an A-list director. They were talking about Coppola, maybe George Lucas, Spielberg, like all these people were on their list. And they ended up with Robert Wise, who of course had made West Side Story and Daily Earth Stood Still and stuff. And yeah. th- this is what we got. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say... <clears throat> Robert Wise, of course, is amazing. Genius. Oh, sorry, Diego. He's genius. Think- no, no, no. It's a personal thing. Don't, don't trip. Don't trip. I, I did just see uh, West Side Story for the first time, like, in January, on the big screen, uh, no doubt. So, um, I got I crossed off a of Robert Wise blind spot um, on my list. And, yeah, I, I mean... The, the, I'm glad. I, I, well, I don't know about you, Mike. I don't know if you would have wanted them to do the series, like how maybe that would have turned out. But I like that. I like that this happened this way, you know. And we'll talk about the movie itself here in a bit. But uh, I think Robert Wise was a solid choice to make this movie, in it being a you know, you know, a big screen uh, adaptation of that pilot. So yeah, I'm I'm happy that Robert Wise jumped on board and. And brought this uh, this very uh, 2001 influenced epic quality to this uh, to this film. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, it's pretty obvious he he wasn't really a big fan of Star Trek per se. You know, he he did it because of whatever. But surely his big sci fi influence is 2001, right? Yeah, he's like, I'm just yeah, gonna make it's, it's a 2001 like movie. <laughs> <laughs> very much so. Um, I forgot. Um, that it was so blatant that there's like what like a 15 feels like 20 minute sequence where they're docking um which i'm 
I will say when I first watched this, I wasn't huge on it. I'm like, okay, yeah, uh, I'm getting kind of sleepy. But seeing it again, I don't know. I appreciate it a lot more. I, I'm i like, yes, he was going just for a blatant ripoff of 2001, but for me, it works. I don't know. I'm just, maybe I'm older. I'm just more accustomed to this. Maybe slow pacing is not the right word, but this just very deliberately <laughs> paced uh, 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 you know these movements that Weiss makes. Uh, I I don't know. I, I like it. I, I like it too. Um, you know, uh, when I was a kid and I'd see that, I'd be like, "Oh my god, this is so boring. What's going on?" I mean, you know, the nicknames for this movie are Star Trek: The Slow Motion Picture or Star Trek: The Motionless Picture. You know, those <laughs> sort of things. But um, I, and now it's by far my favorite scene in the movie. You know, and I mean, I like the movie, but. Like, it's just so beautiful. I mean, what I always thought of, which may or may not be whatever, but, you know, it's like Robert Wise, like you're saying, did West Side Story. He did Sound of Music. And, you know, he's got that sort of musical approach to filmmaking. And in a lot of ways, this kind of plays like a musical where it's just, you know, visuals and stuff without a lot of plot you know, being advanced and Jerry Goldsmith's score uh, to me is like one of the best ever. So seeing those two things paired together, I think works pretty well. I don't know. What do you think, Diego? Oh, that score is terrific. Uh, Jerry Goldsmith, rest in peace. It's one of the, one of the greatest composers, uh, who, whoever lives, uh, and of course also did the alien theme, which is, uh, my happy place for yeah. science fiction. Um, I have a take on this movie that I did not, ever anticipate having Uh-oh, uh, that the original star trek series is you know it's, it's a lot it's about a lot of parables and helping people understand different circumstances about the world and the people that inhabit it right i think star trek the motion picture is fundamentally about robert wise realizing that no one understands 2001 a space odyssey when they first watch it and so we need to try to understand it and he made a movie about the star trek people trying to understand 2001 a space odyssey and i don't mean like literally like the 2001 doesn't make sense i mean like that the interpretations are so vast and endless that you could kind of attach whatever sentimentality or like cynicism or any any kind of emotion or, or, or idea to that film. And you're probably going to find like a bullseye somewhere. Right. And I think Star Trek, the motion picture is, is, is about trying to find their own understanding. Like, like they're being confronted with something that doesn't even understand itself, you know? And so I, I, it's a really beautiful film about people coming together to, to overcome like communication barriers. And I think this is the best Star Trek movie. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I can't I believe, not wait expect. a second. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this yeah. is the first official episode. We're just, we're already showing our cards. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My no, God. <laughs> I, I, whoa. Yeah. I, I, I caught myself off guard. I, I apologize if that just throws <laughs> a bunch of stuff in the air, but maybe, you know, maybe not even the best, but the most fundamental Star Trek film. I think this is it. And to the point about it also kind of being placed like a musical, I don't think it's a mistake that uh, uh, V'ger, get it, because it's like vagina, um, is like, it, it's it's not an accident that the character is like basically emotionless, you know, and everyone else is trying to like maneuver around and like empathize and discuss things. And I don't, I was really blown away by this last viewing. Yeah, I, I mean, a lot of what you're saying, I think, um, makes sense. That it, it it may be the most fundamentally Star Trek, at least in the traditional sense, because it's the only one that Roddenberry was intimately involved with, for one thing, you know. And certainly, he butted heads with the studio and everything like that. And it was after this one where they were like, "Okay, Roddenberry, you know, you can stick around and advise us, but we need to get this job done," you know. But like Roddenberry, who had been sort of like hampered by the network for three years, finally here, he's like, I've got money, I've got time, I can make this like abstract and weird, and uh, nobody's really going to stop me. And no one really did. And in a lot of ways, I, I think 
that you're right. This is sort of like Star Trek in its purest form in a lot of ways. Yeah, and going back to to this idea that this movie uh, is essentially a remake of the Changeling episode of the original Star Trek. Like, I see like the reason why to do it. Like, you know, go back to a classic episode, remake that. But um, I, I mean, Mike, you should know this. Like when it when it was originally originally released, were there people who were like, "Oh, we've seen this before." Like, is is that, is that a reason why maybe it didn't get such a I mean, it, was it? It was. It was a box office hit, though, right? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing to to understand here. It's like people now look at it and be like, uh, uh, you know, and and maybe even back then there was that thought, but at the time, it it was like a, until Star Trek Four came around, you know, the one with the whales, which like really broke through to the mainstream. This was easily the most profitable. Uh, of the Star Trek movies. And, you know, I think a big part of that was, of course, you know, that it being the first one, there being the spectacle, you know, the idea that, like, Force Awakens, for example, is going to be the most profitable of the Star Wars movies, you know? Everything is going to fall off after that. But people, I mean, certainly, I think there, there were a lot of Star Trek fans who were like, oh my God, seeing this on the big screen is like a dream come true. Seeing it with, you know, excellent effects compared to, you know, what we had seen, uh, you know, on TV and everything. Like, this is like Star Trek, but for real. And, you know, the mainstream, I think, were just kind of like, I mean, it was a big blockbuster. You know, it came out in December of 1979, and, you know, that was a big tentpole movie. Um, but as far as like the reaction and, and comparing it to Changeling, I'm sure the fans were like, ah, this is very similar to that episode. And maybe they cared, maybe they didn't. But the average viewer had no idea that this was like a remake of, of an episode of the show. You know. Yeah, because at this point, how many years has it had it been since it since the series was canceled? What, like 10, 10 years? Yeah, 10, 10 years, years. Yeah. yeah. And I know, because like, uh, reading some about it, um, you know, yeah, the, it was like low viewership and also just the fact it was expensive to make, but it changed the way, uh, TV networks looked at series and how they looked at demographics because yes, there was a huge movement of, I was gonna say nerds, people who, <laughs> who loved, you know, the, the, the original show and who were like saying, bring it back, why'd you cancel it? So yeah, it, it changed the way, um, it, you know, it, uh, yeah, how networks looked at, you know who was watching the show and and what particular age range age range was watching the show. So yeah, there are people. Yeah, I'm sure there are people in the know. But I guess the the America as a whole, I guess, was just like, oh, this is Star Trek. I heard of Star Trek. My nerd son liked it. I'm gonna go watch this movie. Oh, look at this. It's pretty. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Or it's like, oh yeah, that's on every day. You know, at five o'clock in the afternoon, and you know, occasionally I see an episode, and now they're doing a big one. You know, oh cool, I'll go see that. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, it is strange, you know, like uh, one of the things that that this movie doesn't really have is like a villain, right? I mean, it's like a bunch of people trying to just figure something out. And I mean, that's a really Star Trek thing in general. I mean, certainly most episodes of the original series end in like fistfights, but like (laughs) conceptually, it's about, you know, figuring stuff out, right? just mm-hmm. using using intelligence and whatever to to try to you know seek out new life and new civilizations and that's what this is doing so you know what else this reminded me of because i'm doing my own uh adam sandler steven spielberg retrospective podcast uh, called happy amelin check it out um <laughs> close encounters of the third kind is also about communication and, and barriers and I got a big Spielberg vibe, or at least attempt vibe, uh, from the motion picture. Like I, I don't know, maybe I'm maybe I'm crazy right now, but I, that's I felt like someone else just watched it recently <laughs> when they made this. <laughs> I mean, that makes sense. It came out two years before um, motion picture, right? And mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, certainly Star Wars and Close Encounters, you know, Spielberg and Lucas are the the gold standard for blockbuster filmmaking. So anybody who's going to be making a science fiction movie at this point in time is going to, I think, sort of adopt that 
philosophy, right? Or at least any studio is going to want to, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It just makes sense. Yeah. So. And, uh, hey, I mean, speaking of reading into things, I mean, Diego mentioned earlier about V'ger, you know, being close to vagina. I mean, I uh, the, uh, the point when Spock um, was in a spacesuit uh, entering... Was he entering feature? <laughs> yeah. Yes. And he says, "I'm penetrating the the, the species or something." I go, "Yeah, this is um, this very is sexually charged." Yeah, it's a sexually charged movie, which I, I frankly am a fan of because let's make more things sexually charged. But yeah, um, I can read a lot into this, and I do, and I, <laughs> I enjoyed watching it this time with those new eyes. That apparently, first time I saw him, I was too young to know. <laughs> Anything mm-hmm. about anything, but now I'm like, yeah, um, that had to be there. It, I, I can't imagine it was a huge mistake for a lot of this, these, this wording, and these names, and uh, you know the fact that uh, Spock uh, enters feature. Yeah, it's all there. Yeah, and this movie was rated G, by the way. So um, <laughs> no, um, yeah. Here's the thing about Gene Roddenberry. Uh, he, he's horny. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, he's he's a big fan of the sex and um, <laughs> the sex. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you look at you know the original series. I mean, it's there all over the place. He wrote a a movie that was directed by Roger Vadim called Pretty Maids All in a Row. Um, check that out. Uh, <laughs> certainly an interesting movie. Not sure that it holds up tremendously well, but it's it's still, I mean, I think it's a good movie. Tarantino puts it in his top 10 of all time, so take that Ooh. as you will. Um, and there's a novelization for this movie, which Roddenberry wrote himself, and I haven't read it, but they, they did just re-release it. You can get it on Audible now and everything, but um, apparently there's some stuff in there where it's just like, wait, what? You're Okay, all right. You know, a lot of stuff with like Ilea and everything, and it's just like, okay. Uh, I guess I guess that's how, how this, this works. Fine. Um, it it's strange. Like he had, I mean, <laughs> I've talked about this a lot with, with, uh, my friend Max and, um, like Gene Roddenberry's vision of the future, which everyone always talks about and how, um, you know, it, it, it may have been, uh, Roddenberry sort of looking at things in a way that are convenient to Roddenberry. The idea of like monogamy being kind of stupid and stuff like that. <laughs> 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 there's there's a lot to unpack there but uh yeah yeah i all of that to say i think you're right marcelo oh yes thank you god <laughs> see and i i thought i was being crazy i thought i was crazy in my uh-huh. in my thought process i thought i was just being you know well hey i i went to film school you know <laughs> sometimes i get it right but sometimes you know i just i just grab it you know i grab at straws and like i, I try to pull things together that aren't there but thank you mike for for reaffirming that Roddenberry was a big horn dog. Thank yep. you. Uh, un- undeniably so. Yes. A lot of my favorite bits in a, in the original series are just Spock has a one track mind and it's really great whenever he meets like an attractive alien species. Like there's my, one of my favorite bits ever is when uh, I, f- I forget what episode it is, but it's like him and Kirk speaking to like some alien queen or something. And she said, I've never had the honor of meeting a Vulcan before. And he goes, nor I a work of art, madam. And Kirk just looks at him like, damn, dude. Like, whoa, spitting game. Like, what do they teach Vulcans growing up? It's like, you know, cut, cut to the chase, get to the point. That's Yeah, uh, like, whoa. <laughs> Steamy. Yeah. yeah, you know, I mean, it's Vulcans. They, I mean, they have all those emotions, right? They just suppress them, you know? <laughs> Excuse me. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh well. So, I, what, what did you guys think about the way this movie looked? Because that's obviously a big thing here. Oh my god, it's stunning. Uh, I, I think the set design is fantastic. I know that was like it was. It was a little cheaper on the cheaper side. Um, I can't really tell. It looks really good for the time. Uh, the, the color coordination with the outfits and the cast is really impressive. Uh, they, the kind of washed out, like, gray uniforms compared to, like, the, the older, more lively, colorful ones. I think it does a nice job contrasting the uh, 
like the youthful vigor of the original series versus like, all right, we're a little older now. Like we still kind of got it in us vibe um, of the story that they're set up on. Uh, really, really impressed by the look of this film. Yeah, I am too. Um, again, I don't want to emphasize this, but yes, watching it in standard definition, a shame. I, I really do want to see a, a high def version of this uh, director's cut. Uh, 4k version please um but yeah i i i i dug the look um like to diego's point about the the costumes i mean i do enjoy color every now and then it is maybe a bit too beige but i think it's it's a good contrast to um the finale when things just go insane like they're in like this like red vortex or some something and they're in they're in feature and like it all just becomes it doesn't get to 2001 you know third act territory but it it uh, again it's obviously influenced by that and there's some crazy color stuff going on so i think that's a good contrast but i don't know i i do like that the colored costumes uh i mean mike i mean how do you feel about that these these beige costumes or just costumes in the star trek universe overall i don't know I mean, I think these were kind of a misstep, you know, the, the pajama costumes as they, they call them, you know, it's, uh, I mean, I think it's, it's clear why they, they went in another direction in future movies. Um, but perhaps, and I'm sure their thinking was like, I mean, the reason why the, the costumes on the original show were bright red, bright yellow, and bright blue is because NBC had just switched to color and they really wanted to show off their, um, their, their, their abilities from a technical standpoint, you know? So it just makes sense. That's why there are so many like vibrant primary colors on the original series. And maybe that's not super realistic for, for something like this. And when you're going for super realism, you know, the, you might want to go in a different direction. So I, I understand that. I think maybe the the pajama thing was supposed to show some sort of like peak efficiency in future clothing or something, you know, comfort as well as style or something. I think it just, for whatever it is or however realistic it may be, it just doesn't look tremendously good. You know, it's, it's, I, I have trouble like buying that, that, that people would wear this in sort of a military setting. So, you know, I don't know if that really works for me, but I think that the, the set design is great and everything. The photography is, is really nice. Um, lots of split diopter shots for yes, one yeah. reason or another. <laughs> and, um, you know, the, the visual effects I think are also really solid, you know, and, and that was certainly a, a big deal at the time was like, wow, you know, look at, I mean, we've loved Star Trek for years and years and years, but it's always been this cheap thing that was just on TV in the 60s, and now we're seeing it in, in all of its glory on the big screen, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. And uh, how much, here's a question, how much of the uh, director's cut uh, includes new... Um, well, new at that point when they made it, uh, special effects. Because I, I, I mean, I mentioned earlier the opening credits for sure. Mm-hmm. They were made in uh, yeah. in, in the year this came out. What was it? The year two thousand? Uh, two thousand or two thousand and one? Yeah, yeah, two thousand one. Yeah. Very. Oh, it it breaks my heart. It just it does not look good uh, by twenty twenty standards. But I don't know. I, I, I'm kind of rewatching it here in the background. Uh, about an hour in, when they're going through the vortex like when they're seeing like this they're going through like the tunnel again very vaginal um uh, those effects still hold up so i'm just wondering like, how much how many new effects were added in for this uh director's edition um i mean not not a whole lot i think most of them are kind of hidden um and i think most of them probably occur at the end because that was the thing i mean the the whole idea behind the director's edition was not to do a a George Lucas thing where you're updating it for, for the modern era, but it was to finish the movie that they never got to finish. You know, they had a a firm release date, December 7th, 1979, and they couldn't budge from that. And they worked on it up until the very end. And they had some issues with uh, the various like uh, visual effects, 
houses that that were were working for them and they needed to fire a bunch of people and then they brought in Douglas Trumbull who did work on <laughs> 2001 as well as uh, various other things to to uh you know basically take over the effects and try to crank them all out as quickly as possible and they just had to make hard decisions and they couldn't finish it. So like what, what the director's edition does is it finishes the movie, both in terms of the effects, but also in terms of the editing. And as far as the new effects, uh, I think kind of the most notable changes occur at the end when V'ger gets to earth and you actually see like the ship, like the actual V'ger ship. You never saw that in the original cut, but the design of the ship and everything, even though it is CGI, it was originally designed back in 1979. And, you know, that was what they had always intended to do. And there's a couple of shots, like when those balls are like flying over earth where you're like, okay, you know, they have some, some CGI flame effects on them, which they couldn't have done back in, you know, 1979. But for the most part, it's, nothing that couldn't be done, even though it was all CGI, it was nothing that couldn't be done back in 79. So, yeah. I, I mean, to me, the, the more important thing is is the editing. There's a few things which are added and a few things which are taken out in order to make it all just flow a lot smoother. Yeah, because I for sure saw this the theatrical cut of this on Blu-ray, um few years ago i can't remember when uh the first only time i saw it was on blu-ray so yeah i had to have seen the theatrical cut and i mean i i honestly don't want to go back to the theatrical cut after watching this cut because i prefer this cut i yeah yeah, it's it's much better than i think well again i mean i'd have to compare contrast but this cut as it is like i i like it a lot it's kind of an open and shut case. I mean, this is like Blade Runner, the final cut sort of thing. You know, I mean, not uh, such a drastic change in terms of content, but it's like one of those things where, you know, if if the theatrical cut went away, nobody would care because the theatrical <laughs> cut was never something which was really supposed to be seen in the first place. And, uh, you know... Uh, it, it exists basically because those that's the only thing which is available in HD, like the only thing that had, you know, because the reason why there is no HD version of the director's cut is because when they were doing the effects, they mastered them all at DVD resolution, which is like, what are you doing, guys? Insane. Come on. It's insane. <laughs> you know? And if, have I mentioned before to you guys that I, uh, I you know, I, will, <laughs> I was going to stop myself, but I should finish my sentence. I, I think I prefer the theatrical cut of Blade Runner to anything else. Okay. <laughs> Wait. <wanted> a, <laughs> we can't. We can't. We can't be stopped and bogged down by the what I just said. Let's let's keep going. Let's keep going. <laughs> You're going to hell. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, taste is subjective. Whatever. But that's a wrong one. Like I mean, I like was. the narration. You know, the idea behind the narration, but the ending is just you just, you just can't do it. You know. Yeah. I yeah, like hearing yeah. Ridley Scott describe it though. The story behind that, which we don't have to get into, but if you're interested, just look up Ridley Scott, Stanley Kubrick, Blade Runner on YouTube, and <laughs> it's it's very funny. He's just like, yeah, no, it's not nothing special. I just asked. He said yes. That's it. It was a job. Bye. <laughs> it's totally just like deromanticizing everything, and I love it. Basically, going back, yes, like similar to Blade Runner, I can see uh, this being the definitive cut, and hopefully, um, we'll get a more definitive cut in. In 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 an addition that actually plays on uh, my 4K TV better than this does. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and I mean the the big problem with doing that is that they will have to go back and redo like from scratch all of those effects which they did back in 2000. So that that kind of sucks, um, and that's why there is the hold up there, but. Um, but yeah, but I mean, rumors persist that, that, that is something which is happening. So, so that's really cool. And, um, just one other note, which is kind of interesting on VHS and, uh, pan and scan 
Laserdisc, there is a third cut of the movie, what? which is like an extended cut where they 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 basically it, it's similar to like what happened with Superman the movie, like when it aired on TV or whatever. Oh, wow! They were just like, let's throw in other stuff, you know? Like we have all these extra scenes that were cut out of the movie. Let's throw them back in, and it's like, okay, I mean, great, except. They cut them out for a reason, you know? <laughs> and I mean, there's like even stuff where it's like, okay, he's like, there's a scene where like Kirk is getting into his spacesuit before flying out to confront Spock. And it's like a different colored spacesuit or something like that. And there's like a scene, I mean, the reason why it's not available in like the widescreen version of the laser disc is because like at one scene it was, they like shot like a, like a, rehearsal or something and you can see like the edge of the set in the you know so when they crop it it's fine you know it's bad i mean and, and wait it's, so there's there's wait so you're saying for one of those sh- scenes it's a rehearsal that they shot and they just put it in this version something like that i mean <laughs> I, I mean it was it's like one of those things where it's just like let's throw everything in there and that was the first time i mean that was the version that i watched until i'm um, for the longest time and you know, it was one of those things where, like, Robert Wise come out and said, like, this is not, you know, like, the theatrical cut is not my cut of the movie, but at least that's what I was doing when they kicked us off and made us, you know, print this movie. Like, this thing is just, it has no correlation to what we were doing at all, you know? Wow. But and- some of those, some of that stuff actually did end up in the director's cut. But there's stuff in the theatrical cut which got removed as well so you know wow that's yeah that's fascinating so oh so in, in a way that cut what, what, does it even have a name like the, the, the laser it, disc cut <laughs> i think it's called like the extended edition or something the extended edition it, it would be most most uh widely seen on on vhs that that would have been like basically if anyone was watching it on vhs that would be the version that they had for the most so, part so i'm guessing it's because of that version wise came in and go oh wait a second um no, let me let me try to do it myself. Then the director's cut came out. I'm guessing that's how it went. Well, no, not really. Like Wise was like, I, you know, I, I wanted to, like for years and years and years. Wise was like, let me do the director's cut because <laughs> I mean, like, like he said, I think he said a lot of it when when they were you know doing the press for it and everything. He's like. Th- at that point, his career was basically over. You know, he was a lot older then. And he's like, this is just the one movie that I've made in my entire career where I'm not entirely happy with it because I didn't get to finish it. So just let me finish it. And they, they did, you know? So, yeah. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. I mean, the editor of Citizen Kane, I mean, you got to give it to him eventually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yeah. So, okay, any final thoughts on Star Trek The Motion Picture, Diego? Ooh, um, I wish the cast did have a little bit more to do. Uh, the, this last rewatch really was like a revelation for me, but I do, I, I love the character interactions between everyone. I love seeing everyone re-meet again for the first time. It's such a delight, but there's really not a lot of character stuff here. It really is kind of like one of those movies you kind of expect this sounds really pretentious, but it's one of those movies you kind of like feel and experience more than like indulge in too much. But I think that's kind of the beauty of it too. So by the end, when V'ger, uh merges the uh, uh, Decker and the Ilya probe, they um, and uh, you know we see them like go off into space and uh, they save the planet, and Kirk then gives the the signal for them to head out there you know like that's classic star trek shit and it's really calling to like the grand human adventure into the unknown not with fear or trepidation but with excitement and and wonder and it's it's a really beautiful film and if people were turned off by it because i also was turned off by it when i was younger it's a little slow um i really recommend going to watch it uh after a long like break in between viewings because i i think this one ages very very well what about you, Marcelo? Yeah, I mean, um, I'll say this here. Um, this is not my favorite Star Trek movie, um, like Diego. Um, uh, we'll talk about my favorite later. Um, 
but uh, yeah, it's revisiting this now, you know, several years after watching it for the first time, I really do. Uh, I, 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 it reminds me why I love Star Trek, and then also the episode we watched um, um, in companion with this, uh, the Changeling. Just these ideas, very specific to like what Ron Barry and what the writers, what the creators of Star Trek were had in mind, like making a a, a series about these adventurers who find new life and and have to deal with it, have to sort of play a detective in parts, like try to figure out what exactly is the problem, like why exactly this thing is, you know, doing this crazy stuff that we have to, you know, basically save the universe from. Um, that stuff. And then this movie itself, just the epic uh, grand scale of it, I love the special effects. Yeah, there's a lot of it I definitely do love, and it's it's a reminder why I love Star Trek, even though I'm not as big of a fan as a lot of people, um, especially these two here with me um, on this podcast. Uh, but yeah, no, I again a reminder why I love Star Trek, and yeah, we'll talk about like <laughs> how maybe this differs from the next movie, and <laughs> um, how it it's not like a huge change to me. But going back to what Diego was saying about you know this is not this is not a character piece. Um, I think the next one will deal with that uh, in ways I am happy to talk about. So yes, that's my those are my thoughts on Star Trek: The Motion Picture. Yeah, I, I mean I like this movie too. You know, it's my, certainly my opinion of it has changed over the years. When I was thirteen years old or twelve years old and, and saw this for the first time, this was the first Star Trek anything that I had ever seen, and the only reason why I watched it was because. I was a big Star Wars fan and, you know, I was just like, well, I guess I should try out this other star thing. And I was like, whoa, this is not what I was looking for, you know, and I absolutely hated it back then. And my opinion of it certainly grew and changed as I got older. And the director's cut certainly helped with that as well. But I think looking at it now, what I see is a movie which has a lot of interesting ideas in it, even if they're not executed tremendously well. There's so much to kind of unpack that it really is a good movie and really is worth watching, even if it's not elite-level Trek. So that's my, that's my take. Take that, Diego. No, I'm <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, fuck me, I guess. No, is this is this? <laughs> no, 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 I'm I'm just playing around. But is this is this yeah. gonna be? It'd be funny if it goes like this, where you rewatch this, Diego. You go, this is the best one. Then second one. Oh wait, this is the best one. Then Diego. Goes, oh wait, the third one's the best one. No, fourth one. I want that to happen. <laughs> no, mean, no, it'll be not not thing. to dismantle the conversation already, but it'd be amazing if we, like we go to we get to five. You know, the, the one notoriously very few people enjoy, and I'm like, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I have a well, take. Um, re- re- real quick, remind me what five is about because I think that's the one I really want to revisit. Why does God need a starship? I think that's the one where they actually fight God or something. Yes, yes. Yeah. I am so happy we're doing this because I want to. Re- one of the main reasons why I'm happy we're doing this is just to rewatch that movie, oh, yeah. <laughs> and I, I probably will have some quote unquote controversial takes because I remember watching that and going. Holy shit, that's something. So, yes. I uh, yeah, my 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 friend John, he loves that movie. That's m- maybe his favorite out of all of them even if he admits that it's not the best. And he said that he would uh turn that on every night and just it would help him fall asleep, which to me is like, <laughs> well, maybe that's saying something about the movie right there, but whatever. Okay. How can you fall asleep during that movie, um, especially that last act? It's insane. <laughs> this is true. This is true. Yeah. But anyway, all right. Well, this has been good. And, you know, next week we're going to be talking about Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. And prior to that, the episode which we will be looking at, of course, will be Space Seed from Star Trek, the original series. It's kind of a must, right? So, yeah. That's it. 
Um, <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Did, uh, didn't somebody have a final catchphrase ready? I do. Before we get to that, uh, Marcelo. Oh, that's right. Plugs, right? Yeah, Marcelo, where can people find you on the internet? How could I forget plugs? Uh, mine's real simple. Just talkfilmsociety.com. Not sure when this is coming out, but uh, there's always a good resource there. Um, Talk from Society. Uh, read us, listen to us, love us. And the Patreon, patreon.com slash society for commentaries, new series, all that good stuff. So, yes, do those things. All right. What about you, Diego? And, of course, you can follow me at the Twitters at the Diego Crespo and check out my other podcast at the Waffle Press, uh, Happy Amblin, Retrospectives, all, all that good jazz over there. All right. And uh, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Mumbles3K. You can also find me on FilmDamagePod.com doing a show called Film Damage. So, yeah, I do have a catchphrase that I think would be good um, for, for the end of each episode. It's from Star Trek Three, when oh. when uh, Captain Kirk is kicking Christopher Lloyd off of his leg. And he says, <laughs> I have had enough of you. <laughs> That'd be good, right? Yeah, it's good. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. Okay. Right. Should we try it? Oh, together. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Here we go. Okay. Well, on the count of three. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. One, two, three. I I have had, have had enough, enough of, of of you. You. Uh, we'll work on that. Okay. We'll work on it. <laughs> Bye, everybody.